become Christians in the near term, in, in the distant past that has just occurred. And we want you to know that we appreciate you and want to help you. We pledge ourselves to help you to grow in your faith. You are an example to us and we realize our responsibility and the privilege that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ. We also have some who are taking the gospel other places uh, that we know of off the top of our heads. We know of five that are sharing the gospel in some way overseas. They have gone forth literally from this place uh, and that's the Dubrees and the Dickersons and David Chang, who has just gotten on a plane this morning to go to South Korea. The other four are in Beckway and are continuing to share the gospel there. We are grateful for them and for their faith and their willingness to share it. But sometimes we don't really know what all is going on. We don't typically address anymore, if we've forgotten to, those who are virtually watching us. I want to share with you one that you may not be aware of that we just learned about uh, this past week or so. His name is Kith. Kith is a Ugandan, and he is, as far as we know, the only New Testament Christian in the country of Cyprus. He has only become a Christian recently as the result of having looked in his Bible, studying the book of Acts, looking and seeing what God would have him to do to be saved, and all on his own, He determined that he needed to be baptized to have his sins washed away. So he got on the internet and he began looking for a church that would teach baptism for the remission of sins. And he found the Lord's church. He began to consume videos to look at resources put out by churches of Christ. And he came to the conviction that he needed to be baptized. So happens that there's a brother in Christ who is studying at a university in Israel and got on a plane. He and his wife went, studied a little bit more with him, and baptized him into Christ. They have started studying, or he has started studying immediately with a friend of his at the university where he is attending. He's the only Christian at this point. And one of the organizations he reached out to, House to House, Heart to Heart, some of us remember Matt Wallen. Uh, who uh, talked at our men's retreat, he recommended that he, while they're trying to establish a church there, attend the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ. And so in addition to those in this room, he would love to meet in person, but he can't. And so for now, he's with us, and so we're grateful to have Kith worshiping with us. It's an international assembly today. Pray for Kith as he grows in his faith and as he seeks to bring others into the body of Christ. Renee Burdar, very interesting to look into her circumstances and to know what happened in her life. She reached a low one day when she reached the high on the scales. She was on July 13, 2013, the day she took this picture, She was 420 pounds. She said, I know why. I like to eat. She said, and when anything is there that I like to eat, I will eat all of it. And she said, if I like the flavor, I just can't stop. And so she decided that she needed to come up with a diet plan. She did on July 13th, 2013. And that diet plan for her was that if she liked the taste of it, she wouldn't eat it. She'd eat everything else. 18 months 
and she lost 250 pounds. And she began running 5Ks. She seriously considered running marathons. And while she hasn't done that yet, she's able to do what she could not physically do just a few months ago before she tried to lose that weight. Now when you hear that story, on one side, isn't it an inspiring story? But on the other side, isn't it a disturbing story? Disturbing to think that if you're going to do something like this, you've got to do something like have only the foods that you don't like to eat go into your body. It's hard. What we're talking about is something that for her at least was a great battle, a temptation, and she had to fight it in the most extreme way that she knew how. You know, the Bible tells us a lot about temptation. There are several Bible truths about temptation. When we begin to study what Scripture says about it, I'm sure this isn't all of them, but here are some of the truths about temptation. That first of all, temptation is a battle. It's a battle that is described for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In chapter 10, we see that what we are doing is we're trying to destroy everything that's a speculation against the knowledge of God, and we're trying to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That sounds like a fight that we're in, and as the result of that, we've got to stay in the fight. Temptation's a battle. It's not easy. We also see that it's a universal battle. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 that there has not been any temptation that has taken you but such as is common to man. Everybody's going through this battle, though the particulars, the specifics may be different. But then we see that it is a personal battle. In James chapter 1 and verse 13, James says to us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, because God is not tempted of evil, neither does he tempt anyone, but everyone is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Whatever I'm struggling with, whatever my weakness is, it is my personal battle. It's not exactly the same as yours, and yours is not from mine or anyone else's, but it is our battle. It is within the person. But as we look at this, we also see that it is a spiritual battle. As the Apostle Paul is describing this battle in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. It doesn't mean that temptation doesn't strike our flesh. That's one of the ways that it does. But it means that where the battle is being fought is in our heart and it's in our mind. And so as we fight, we need to realize where the battleground is. It may play out outwardly, but it starts within. But it is also an endless battle. As we look at this particular parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 43, I'm reminded that as I fight the battle and I'm successful and I clear that thing out of my life, I've got to replace it with something that's healthy, that's strong, that's solid, because if I don't, then along will come something worse into my heart and my life and I'm in a place lower than I was before. It's ongoing. I can't let up. But the truth about temptation that I want you to drink in is that it is a winnable battle. In James chapter 4, matter-of-factly, this inspired writer says that if you will resist the devil, he will flee from you. God wants us to know 
that as imposing as the devil may seem, and as great as temptation may appear to be, that it is a battle that not only that we can win, not only that God wants us to win, but that so many have won. All we need to do is go to the garden that we read about in the wilderness, rather, in Matthew chapter 4, and look at the 40 days that Jesus spent there. And we see how Jesus took on the devil and defeated him, squared off against him. And perhaps we'll say, well, sure, he's the perfect son of God. No wonder you would say that. But the question is, is there a way for us to look and see somebody who's imperfect like you and me? And see somebody who engaged in the battle of temptation and who won. The case study that I want us to consider this morning that we've already got a taste of in Genesis chapter 39 concerns a young man who seemed to have the odds stacked against him. He was a young man who found himself at odds with those at home who was an outcast in that situation and who was unfairly driven from home even though he did nothing wrong. And yet the Bible tells us on three different occasions that the Lord was with him. Do you see that in Genesis 39? You'll find it in verse 2, in verse 21, in verse 23. Even though he is in this foreign place as the result of having done nothing wrong, the Bible reminds us that God had not abandoned him. In the highs, in the lows, God was there. Even though this chapter begins by telling us that Joseph had come down from uh, the, the place where he had been sold into slavery to Egypt, and he was sold to a, an official of uh, Pharaoh, a captain of the guard by the name of Potiphar. And he bought him of the Ishmaelites and brought him down from there. The Bible says the Lord was with Joseph and he was a very prosperous man. And he was in the house of the Egyptian. And the Egyptian, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him and it caused everything that came into his hand to prosper. And so he made him the overseer over his house. And the Lord blessed Potiphar's house for Joseph's sake. And so the man prospered and was blessed in everything, in his house and in the field. He had grace in the eyes of Potiphar and he served him. And it came to pass as the Lord blessed everything that was in his hand, that which was in the house and that which was in the field, that the Egyptian Potiphar knew nothing that was in his hand save the food that he ate. And Joseph was a handsome person and well favored. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon him and said, lie with me. Now that connects us to our Bible reading. In Genesis 39, verse 7 through 12. And what we find, starting with the text that was read so well a moment ago by Harold, is some truths that can help us in the battles with temptation that we face. I'd like us to take just a few moments and learn some principles from Joseph that can help us in our own battles of temptation. Let's walk through those verses together. As we do, we see first of all, Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, he said no, and he really meant it. You'll see that in verse 8. Yes, he refused her, verse 8, but he had to do so day after day, verse 10. Will you contrast that with me, with Eve? Now if you think about Eve's circumstance, Eve did not pursue temptation. So far as we can tell, Moses reveals she was minding her own business. She wasn't courting temptation. And along comes the serpent. 
And the serpent, in engaging her in conversation, begins to question whether God had her blessings and her benefits in mind. And as the result of this, Eve lingered longer in the produce section of the Garden of Eden and she saw a tree, a tree that God said was off limits. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says that when the woman saw the the tree, that it was good for food and pleasant to the eyes, and a tree that was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he also ate it, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. She had the same ability to resist temptation that Joseph did, but she did not exercise it. And as the result of having not exercised it, look at the change in the course of history and the consequences that followed that. When we look at Joseph, we see a man who was characterized by self-denial. He would not engage himself in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life that John talks about in 1 John 2, verse 15 through 17. He did not waver in that. He did not put a question mark where God had put an exclamation point. You know, when we look at how Joseph responded to the temptation that he had, it reminds us that when we slam the door on temptation, we can't leave it cracked even a little bit. Joseph shows us that we say no and we mean it. You know, isn't it wonderful that the Bible gives us a picture of those who are faced in circumstances where they'd be tempted and what helped them to say no and to really mean it? Were principles like these, Psalm 119 and verse uh, 137, where David says that I will turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. What about Solomon in Proverbs 23 and verse 31? He says that don't look at the wine when it's red in the cup, seeing how it sparkles and how smoothly it goes down. Or how about Ephesians 4.27? I like the way the old King James puts this. Don't give place to the devil. When I hear it that way, it makes me think about how we might have fellowship. Don't set a place setting at your table and allow the devil to be one of the voices in your inner circle that you might associate with and you might fellowship with. Joseph didn't do that. He had no place for the devil. He said no and he meant it. Go back with me for a moment to the temptations in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke where we read what Jesus went through. It's remarkable that Mark and Luke indicate to us that, they, that Jesus was not just tempted on that one occasion we read about in Matthew chapter 4, but they indicate that he kept on being tempted. And it's remarkable to see what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 5, that at the end of that third recorded temptation, he says, go away. He said no and he meant it. Do you see his relentless ability in the face of temptation? Joseph, his no meant no. And even when he was put to the test, he was good at his word. And he said, I won't stay in this situation. No is the final answer. We remind ourselves of what Luke 4 and verse 13 says, that the devil did leave him, but he left him until an opportune time. You see, you're not going to just be able to say no once and be done with the temptation. You've got to be prepared to say no in the future when the opportunity may arise again. You know, maybe you're a word nerd. There is different ways to look at words in our language. Um, And you think about the longest word in the English language. When I was a kid, I guess it's how long ago it was. I don't know how many letters this was. But you know what the longest word was, right? Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. 
We even had a Disney movie to help us to say that. We wouldn't even know how to say it without that. That used to be the longest word, and then it got longer. But did you know that that's not even, it's not even in the finalists anymore? Because they named these chemical compounds, and the longest word in the English language goes by the nickname Titan. Maybe in your chemistry class, this came across in your textbook. It would have taken up a lot of space in that book. Because it's a mashup of all the chemicals that make up the word. Did you know that that word is 189,819 characters long? That an average person in reading that would take three hours. Um, If you follow Mr. Beast on YouTube, he actually sat down and he read that entire word. This is what it looked like. He put it on the screen. This is not all of it. This is all we could fit on the screen. took him two hours... Somehow, 34 million people viewed that video. I got about 10, 15 seconds in and I was done. I got the point. It's a long word. It's a hard word. It's difficult. But it's by far not the most difficult word to say. The most difficult word to say is no. No to temptation. It's hard to say no to the temptation to sin. And yet I look at Joseph and I see him in a very difficult situation and he was able to say no. We've got to say no to self and to sin and to Satan and mean it. We learn that from Joseph. But then second, we learn that Joseph indicates to us that he would not betray the confidence that others had in him. Joseph reviews his situation. And as he looks at it, he says that... that Potiphar had put everything in his charge. And he said, there's no one in the house who is greater than I. Joseph is not boasting. What Joseph is doing is he's admitting the truth that existed, that because God was blessing Joseph and was making everything to prosper in his hand, that Potiphar recognized this. It was a financial, a business decision. And so he put everything, only the food he ate was he concerned about. And so Joseph understood the great responsibility that was handed to him. And don't we appreciate those who have standards, who have principles, especially those principles that are rooted in the Word of God and they stand on them? That they really believe that when they're responsible that they've got to follow through with that responsibility? We live in a world that doesn't honor the promises that are made. But when we see it, we're grateful to see it. But what I I like to suggest to you that Joseph was not the only one that had others putting faith and trust in him. Every one of us here are representing at least two groups who have put their faith and trust in us that we're going to live lives of purity. That first group would be our physical family. Our physical family is trusting us that we're going to live in a way that's right in God's eyes wherever we are. Maybe you grew up in a home like I did. So often when I was leaving home, my parents would say to me on the way out the door, remember who you are and what? Whose you are. When we go out of our house, we are representing two groups, two names. If we're Christians, first and foremost, we're representing the name of Christ. But second, we're representing our last name. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 1, the Bible says that a wise man is a joy to his father, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Think about the grief that Samson's parents felt because of Samson's inclination to fall into sexual sin. We represent our family, but we also represent our spiritual family. 
our church family. I wonder how it might change things in our lives. If we could imagine ourselves as we're tempted, maybe we're well down the road of trying to open the door to fornication or adultery. If we could imagine ourselves having a conversation with an elder or a preacher or a godly Christian woman or a respected member of the church and explaining to them why we are going to give in to that sexual temptation. You know, the Bible tells us that the church is a family. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. We need to represent the family name. And the family name is the name of Christ. It's Christian. There are others who are looking to you. To our young people, there are, you probably have younger siblings or younger folks in the youth group and they're guided by the actions that you're taking. But all of us, on the job at school and in our homes, in our families, there are those who are watching to see if we're following the standards that we say that we believe. Joseph, he understood that there were others who were looking at him and he did not want to betray their trust. But then third, Joseph understood that some things don't belong to him. In verse 9 he says, He has withheld nothing from me except you, Because you are his wife. He's telling her, you belong to Potiphar, you don't belong to me. A long time ago, when I was a young man, I I heard it said that when someone chooses to engage in fornication, they are stealing from at least four people. Number one, they are stealing from that other person what they rightfully should give to their future spouse. They're stealing from themselves, taking what they rightfully should give to their future mate. They are stealing from that other person's mate. And they're stealing from their own future mate, what rightfully belongs to them. You know, under the first covenant, God had commandments that were set out to help us to appreciate that there are some things that don't belong to us. The eighth commandment says, you shall not steal. The actual physical taking of that which doesn't belong to you, but maybe even more encompassing was the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your wife. Potiphar's wife had boundary issues, but Joseph did not. He understood that some things did not belong to him. But then fourth, Joseph also recognized that fornication is a sin against God. He makes a remarkable statement, doesn't he? Joseph says, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? How could that be? I want you to analyze with me for a moment this situation. If Joseph had given in to the temptation that Potiphar laid out in, Potiphar's wife laid out in front of him, he would have sinned against Potiphar. He would have sinned against Potiphar's wife. Hey, would he not have sinned against his own family whose name he represented? Would he maybe have sinned against the men that were in the household, verse 11, had they found out about it? And it seems like so often people have a way of finding out these things. What about the situation with David and Bathsheba? You know, David, he sinned. When he sinned with Bathsheba, he sinned against all Israel. 
He sinned against the enemies of God. He sinned against his army. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his own household. He sinned against himself. And yet he says in Psalm 51 and verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Like Joseph, Joseph knew that perhaps by giving in to this, he would have harmed his influence for God with others. But he understood what we must understand, that ultimately all sin is against God. You know, not, not that many years ago, comparatively speaking, the majority of all Americans believed that sex outside of marriage was morally wrong. Pew Research Center in 2020 did a study in which they found that 50% of self-proclaimed Christians said they believed that casual sex with a consenting partner is sometimes or always acceptable. What's happened is perhaps we've stopped speaking about these subjects and focusing on the point... That whoever else we hurt when we sin, all sin ultimately is against God. But then Joseph also recognized that he should not flirt with evil. We see that in verse 10. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. There was a father who asked his boy on a particular day not to go swimming. And as he was driving past the pond later that day, he saw his boy swimming, sure enough. And he asked him about this. He said, I didn't mean to, it just happened. And then the father paid a little bit more attention and he saw that the little boy was in his swimming trunks. And he asked him how it was that he was in his swimming trunks. And he said, I just wanted to have him in case I was tempted to. You know, what we need to do is make sure that we never put ourselves in a, a situation where we might be tempted to. We need to recognize where our temptations are and to take action to stay away from that. Not to allow ourselves to get near it. To understand that there are some weaknesses and areas that we must avoid. Now let's think about that when it comes to our subject this morning. Maybe if that's a struggle that we're having, we don't need to be alone with the one that we care so much about without some kind of accountability. Or maybe we don't need to dress in such a way that it makes it difficult for that one that we love to resist temptation. Or maybe we need to be honest about the thoughts and the feelings that we're having about somebody who does not rightfully belong to us. A fellow by the name of Kevin Kammer was camping at the Soda Butte campground near Cook City, Montana. Wrong place in the wrong time. There was a hungry emaciated grizzly sow who attacked two other people before it, she came to Cameron's tent, pulled him out, mauled him to death. They began to investigate, and there have been a couple of streams of theories, but one of the most dominant ones was that he was uh, being, that she and the other grizzlies were being baited by a wildlife photographer who was trying to get those bears to come in closer. They couldn't prove it into a court of law. But one thing we can all agree on is it's not smart to bait grizzly bears. They're mean. They're vicious in their demeanor. When we think about sin and the temptation to sin, so often it's more subtle and it can come in more attractive packages. But we need more Josephs who will literally flee from temptation if the occasion calls for it. Verse 12, we certainly don't want to bait ourselves Allowing ourselves into spiritual danger is not the behavior of born-again, heaven-bound believers. And so the word flee is a watchword in the New Testament. 
Flee fornication, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 14. Flee from the love of money, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. Flee youthful lust, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. The picture being painted is don't see how close you can get to the edge and to see if you can get, not do it, but get close to it. But instead back away from it. To follow Joseph's example and not even flirt with it. But Joseph also recognized the tempting ways, the seductive measures of the immoral. When we look at what happens in verse 7 and verse 12, there are three notable things we see. We see that first of all, that Potiphar's wife used her eyes. In verse 7, she cast her eyes on him. She saw Joseph. They say that the eyes are the wind of the soul. As we saw a moment ago, 1 John 2, 15-17 tells us that one of the basic ways that temptation comes is through the lust of our eyes. But she didn't just use her eyes, she used her mouth. She would speak to Joseph and she would say to him, lie with me. Read in the first part of the book of Proverbs and see how often that Solomon in warning his son talks about the adulteress and her smooth words and how she uses them to lead her subject to spiritual death. And then she used her hands. The Bible tells us that she grabbed him and he left his garment in her, in his, in her, uh, her hands Read through Genesis 39, depending on your version, and see how often the word hand comes up. And you'll see how Joseph, he had entrusted in his hands, and he used his hands righteously and godly, but Potiphar's wife, she was misusing her hands. Many years ago, we would sing a song in Pewpacker's class, and you may know this one. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little Mouths what you say. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Even children know the value of what we see and we say and we do. As I look at Joseph, what I see is I need to be very careful about my eyes. What do I allow in them? What do I allow to be fed by where I'm looking at, what I'm looking at? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus warns about how we can look on someone in order to lust for them and what may happen of a damaging nature spiritually comes first through the eyes. What about my mouths? Am I speaking? Am I saying things that are inappropriate? Things that are putting kindling on the fire? What about my hands? Are my hands hands of Christ? Am I using them in a way that honors Him? in the context about which we're speaking. But we also need to be careful about the eyes and the mouths and the hands of even those who tell us that they love us and that because of this it's okay for us to let down our guard with them. You know, we might go back through this account. We might ask ourselves, what might have Joseph said? What could he have said as he found himself in this situation? He might have said to himself, What will one time hurt? Really, if I just do this once. And the Bible is filled with the answer to that. Just ask David and Bathsheba. Ask Achan. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. Or he might have said, I'm a long way from home. Nobody will recognize me here. 
And he was. He was in Egypt and he was in a new place. But he realized that even though nobody else on this earth might have recognized him, that God could see. He might have said, I'm not even sure that God exists. And if he does, I'm not sure that he cares because look at what's gotten me to where I'm at right now. I didn't ask to be here. I was unfairly treated. And where was God when all of that happened? What's remarkable as you look at Joseph's life as he looks back over all of these events, including what happens with Potiphar's wife, you know what he would say? He says, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good, that he might bring about many folks alive, preserve their lives. He saw God at work, even in these low moments. But what might Potiphar's wife have said? She might have said, If you don't do this, I'm going to tell everybody that you made a pass at me. I'm going to lie. I don't know if she said it, but that's what she did. She said that Joseph had mistreated and violated her, and we know it wasn't true. She might have said, if you don't do this, I might kill myself. You want to handle that sensitively? Perhaps you might have said, well, I certainly don't want to see that happen, but if you do, that's a decision that you've made. Not me. She might have said, you deserve this. Look at what you've been through. Why not give in? Why not do this? What he might have said in reply is, I don't want to make a bad situation. And as she looked at this situation, she might have said, hey, you're no longer back home. You're in Egypt. We do things differently here. You know, it's as wrong to get drunk on a bar stool or on your couch as it is on a church pew. It's as wrong to be sinfully immodest on the beaches of Florida as it is in the woods of Wisconsin. You see, Joseph understood that geographical boundaries do not determine codes of conduct. Instead, we look at him and we see a a young man faced with some very difficult situations, a circumstance that was hard. And this young man was able to say no and demean it. He realized that there were others who had put their confidence in him. He realized that some things do not belong to him. He realized that fornication is a sin against God. He did not flirt with evil. And he was fully aware of the seductive measures of the immoral. Hey, this is tough because we go out into a world and the world says... It's good. It's okay. It's right to indulge in fornication or adultery. It's wrong and it's old-fashioned to save yourself for marriage. But that message, we've got to be clear, is not a message that God is sending. His word's not fuzzy on this subject. And I want you to think about who's behind all of that. If we go back to Eden for just a moment, we see that the devil hasn't changed his tactics much from the way that he did in Genesis chapter 3. And we look at him there and we look at what was his desire for Eve. He did not want her to have a more fulfilling and satisfying life in any way. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us what he wants. He is looking for someone to devour. He doesn't want us to have joy and peace. He's looking for any ploy he can to rob us of our influence, of our happiness, 
of our peace and of our souls. But there are two very important things I need to say before I close this lesson. Number one, it's not inevitable. You can sweep against the tide. You can resist Him. And God promises He will flee. But maybe more importantly, it's not irreversible. I realize that I'm speaking to people, many of us, Perhaps we'd heard this message and didn't heed it. Or maybe we hadn't heard it before we had already been in violation of what God's Word says on the subject. It's not a lost cause. It's not the end. I think you would join me in saying that we want to present God's ideals and what God says that He wants for us and far better for us to have never gone down that road. But if we have, God tells us, how He feels toward us. He loves us with a perfect love. He wants us. He wants us back. I may be speaking to individuals this morning who are currently losing that battle. Do you realize that you can start again? You can turn away from that. You can stop. You can lean on God's help. And you can come back from that place. Maybe you're toying with that idea. Don't do it. It will not deliver what it promises. But if you have done it, and you need to come back home, and I mean by that when I say done it, if you've been guilty of fornication or adultery, God wants you to come home. He'll welcome you with loving and open arms. I realize so often those are sins of a private nature. This is not an appeal for you to make a, a public response this morning. Take care of that. Because all sin is ultimately against God and you love God because you know how much He loves you. And you don't want to hurt the heart of God who gave everything for you. Let's help each other to fight the battle that's inevitable and universal, spiritual and personal. But brothers and sisters and friends, it's winnable. God wants us to win. Maybe someone here this morning having nothing to do with our subject needs to be obedient to the gospel. Won't you do that today? Again, you know, God loves you with a perfect love that was demonstrated at the cross of Calvary, with the promises of His Word, the hope of heaven that waits out before you. But if you're a child of God who's struggling with any sin, and perhaps it's known to others and it has hurt your influence and you don't know any way to make it right, but perhaps to publicly respond, why not do that? Or maybe you're a child of God who's struggling with not necessarily a sin problem, but with a spiritual problem nonetheless. And you need our support and help. It would be our great honor to help you, to throw our arms around you, and pray to God with you and for you. If this is your invitation and you need to respond, why not now as we stand and sing?